Welcome, everyone, to this episode of the Fired Up and Plugged In podcast, powered by Emergency Reporting. This is the podcast for all 21st century fire and EMS personnel. I'm Tom Lewis, Enterprise Training Manager and the podcast producer. Joining our distinguished host, Randy Brugman, is Mary Camelli, Fire Chief for the Mesa, Arizona Fire and Medical Department. Chief Camelli will share some memorable moments on her journey to becoming a fire chief, as well as how Mesa Fire and Medical continues to innovate service delivery with their social services and community medicine behavioral health program. Chief Camelli began her career as a firefighter in 1983 with Mesa Fire, and she was one of the first females hired by the organization. She has held each rank in the organization, including 11 years as an assistant chief prior to being selected as fire chief. Just recently, the Metropolitan Fire Chiefs Association, a section of the IAFC, and the NFPA named her the Metropolitan Fire Chief of the Year. Chief Camelli is a past president of the Arizona Fire Chiefs Association and currently serves as vice chair of the International Fire Service Training Association, IFSTA, their executive board. She has served the past 13 years with Mesa Sunrise Rotary, holding the position of president in 2012. Chief Camelli also serves as a member of the Community Bridges Board and as a member of the Arizona Fire Chiefs Association Board. She earned Bachelor of Arts degrees in elementary and physical education and holds a master's degree in organizational management. I'm proud to welcome fellow Arizonan Chief Mary Camelli to the podcast. Chief Brugman, it's all yours, sir. Thanks, Tom. Good day, everyone, and welcome back to another session of Fired Up and Plugged In. And today, it's my pleasure to introduce Mary Camelli, Fire Chief of the City of Mesa Fire and Medical Department. Welcome, Mary. It's so good to see you. Thank you so much, Chief Brugman. Yeah, thank you. Really appreciate you being with us today. So let's start a little bit, uh, or, or let's start, uh, if you could tell us just a little bit about uh, Mesa Fire and Medical. Okay. Mesa Fire Medical, we have about, right now we have 600 employees on our department and about 460 sworn. Mm. We have 20 fire stations. We serve a population of a, just over a half a million and we're about 138 square miles. Our department has a special team, special teams, which includes hazmat, technical rescue, ARF, which is aircraft rescue, <laughs> firefighting. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have a wildland team and we also have a bike team. We have, um, in our department, we have ambulances now. We have about 12 ambulances um, that are, um, and we're in operation right now. We have 11 of them are peak and um, one 24 hour. We are working right now with AMR. AMR still has another nine to 10 24 hour units in the system. So right now we're working together, but we just got ambulances in our system about uh, two years ago. And we're still working on that program as we speak. So are you, is the objective to ultimately take over the, the transport uh, end of the thing? Yeah, so yeah. what we're doing there is we're working with CV management as we add units. We started with two, then we had four, mm-hmm. now we're up to 12. So we wow. work with city management every step of the way. And as long as we get approval from city management and council, then mm-hmm. we add units as we go. So as they, as they, our next meeting is next month to see what the next phase will be. And if they're comfortable with the numbers that they see, then we will then they give us to go ahead to add more. Yeah. And and how's the financial with that? I mean, how's that worked out so far? Really well. It's it's basically paying for itself mm-hmm. uh, with a little extra. And I think city management is as long as it pays for itself, and that's really what we want. The the most important thing to us is the continuity of care and the quality of service. Mm-hmm. And uh, basically the the ambulance 
that we ambulances that we have in service today are are paying for themselves with extras as we go along. Yeah. We're still paying off the capital capital and all that, but the uh, operating costs we're bringing in more than it costs us to operate it. Yeah, and it's really uh, I think it's really advantageous to bring everything under one roof if you can. Right, right. And in Mesa of uh, last year, they ran thirty. They transported thirty five thousand uh, calls that got transported to the hospital. So it's definitely a busy <laughs> transportation <laughs> group. So yeah. So did you uh, did you create uh, uh, did you take over the the billing system as well? So we are doing that now. Uh, we have four billers. We're, we're going to need probably ten at the end of this. But uh, Daisy Mountain is the fire district that's just west of us. They kind of helped us get it off the ground. But we are doing the billing right now with we have four billers that are working with uh, with Daisy Mountain's assistance for us to do that. So yes, we are doing it as today. Yeah, we did something similar in Anaheim. We didn't uh, initially take over the transport. We contracted for it, but the first step was to take over the billing cycle. Yeah. Uh, and, and we found that that actually generated uh, about six to eight million dollars in revenue annually. Yeah. And so I think departments should really investigate um, taking control of their own destiny as far as the financials go. You know, that's a really good point. And because you have more incentive to make sure you get the collection right. Correct. Although we don't like to send people to collections, we're the kindler, gentler, you know, fire departments don't like to do that. So we'll let our city businesses services handle that piece of it. But yeah, I think you're right because we have, uh, there's incentive behind it to, mm-hmm. you know, let make sure people, you know, pay the bills. Yeah. And that's a really good way to just reinvest back into the system and, and take the load off of the taxpayer as well. Cause you're going to, they're going to have to pay one way or the other. So if we can maximize the finances that are going back into the system, that just uh, ultimately helps the the customer. So, hundred percent agree to that. Yep, put it right back into the system. I agree, hundred percent with that. <laughs> yeah. So you, you started uh, you started in 1983, which was an interesting time in the fire and emergency services. I started in '79. Okay. I remember about a year after I started, uh, first female firefighter was. Uh, onboarded and um, and so I wanted to just talk a little bit about that experience with you when you first started and then okay. as you have you as you have progressed up through the ranks and just seen the change in uh, the fire and emergency services I'd like to just you know hear your perspective on that okay I'm happy to do that so back in 83 we were still riding tailboard and wearing day boots <laughs> yeah. that's the first thing that I remember for sure but uh, myself and a female named Georgia Ann White, we got hired together. We were the first two women hired by the Mesa Fire Department at that time. And it was new to everybody. I mean, of course, the media wants to know about this. You know, women in the fire service, what's this world coming to? You know, it was a whole new thing. <laughs> and, and I have to tell you, um, so that that generated a lot of attention. The, the folks on the job were really good. I mean, you could tell, I think the spouses were very concerned. Uh, later on, when I'd been on five, six years, I had many spouse, many of the wives and girlfriends come up and tell me that, man, when we first heard about it, we didn't want my husband or my boyfriend working with a woman on the job. Mm-hmm. Because they were 24-hour, you know, of course, our schedules are 24-hour schedules. And most of our stations at that time were one dorm. And so I made mm-hmm. it a point uh, to get to know the families when they show up because I wanted them to know. I'm there to do my job. I'm not there for anybody. You know, I mean, I wasn't there for any other reason but to do this job. I was so excited to to be on the job. I actually moved out to Arizona to teach school. I just got my teaching degree and I moved out to teach school 
<laughs> back in, back in Chicago, school starts in September. Uh, back in, in Arizona, school starts in July and August. So I came out middle of August thinking I'm ahead of the game and school had already started. So I, I know I was either going to be a substitute teacher or I had to get another job in the meantime. Yeah. So uh, I had a brother on the job and he's the one that told me about firefighting. Otherwise, I would have never known it was an option for me. That was something we never talked about, that being an option for women. Uh, mm -hmm. So I was very fortunate and blessed to have him kind of say, this is a, a great career for someone that likes to be active. I've always been in sports, uh, liked the physical activity part of that. So, so being on the job, I was very comfortable. I have six brothers, so it didn't, it was nothing new to me to work with all these, these men. I was just like being at home with all these brothers. I have six brothers and six sisters, so I'm used to being in big crowds. But um, I, I'll tell you, it was really new to the community. Mm -hmm. We'd show up on calls and we'd get asked, what are we doing there? Are we the cook? Are we the secretary? We'd be in the same uniform, getting off the truck with everybody else. And so many times we'd get asked that question, like, what are we, they figured we were a guest, I guess. I don't know, but <laughs> I mean, we couldn't have been firefighters at that time. <laughs> so probably it was, it was really new to the community. And I know that um, the media did a lot on having women in the fire service while we were in the academy. And after we got out of the academy, just to introduce it to the public. So, so get, starting out that way, um, I never liked that kind of attention for sure. I just wanted to do my job and just yeah. do what we had to do. Uh, but then as we progressed in our career, I think every step and every rank was, can a woman do that? Can a woman drive the truck? Because then when I was engineer driving the truck, you didn't get the same kind of comments. Can a woman drive this truck? When I became captain, the same thing is like, can a woman be captain? So. I think I was just so used to um, having all eyes on you for a while in terms of can you do the job? Uh, you just kind of and, and what you do with that and what I learned is I, I never let those comments bother me. I figured it's just I got my job is more to educate. We can do this job. And here we are. You know, there's mm -hmm. now we have about 23 women on the job. We're just right at about four to five percent. We still need more, but we have women of every rank. There's engineers, there's captains. We have battalion chiefs, assistant chief. That's a female. So I, hopefully today it's not as new to the community. We do we do events uh, for women like through the Girl Scouts, and we introduce them to these non-traditional careers now. So these young girls know these these careers are options for them. We do what's called an Aspire Academy, where we invite these girls for three days. They do police activities, fire activities to introduce them to this career. And so that as they grow up, as they go through high school and college, they look back and say, if that's a job, that's an option for me. How I never even knew that was an option. So I, I it, that's important to me to really let young girls know that there's nothing off the table. If it's something you number one, know that it's out there. And two, if it's something you want to do. Yeah. So but and, and the fire service has progressed so much. All of our stations now have separate bathrooms, separate. Most of them have separate dorms. Um, so we forget what they have, you know, we have boots that fit. We have, <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. we got hired everything. The gloves didn't fit. The boots didn't fit. And, um, so we had to go through all of that. You're, you couldn't even buy uniforms that, you know, you had, had to get them altered and all that. So mm -hmm. now I, uh, that kind of stuff is much better for our women today. So and we, we hope that continues. The more women that get hired, you know, the more accessibility there is to these things. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I agree, and uh, you know, I commend you on 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 you know you've been you've been a, a pioneer. Oh. And, you know, so many of the the females that came in during that time period, um, I mean, it was really really difficult. 
uh, for many of them. And and so to to blaze that trail and to to open the door for other females to want to aspire to come into the the profession, I, I think that's just a testament to your leadership. And we thank we all thank you for that. Well, thank you, Randy. I, I do have to say that I had great mentors along the way, and I think. All of us have somebody that kind of uh, mentors mm-hmm. you or packs your parachute to help you through. Yeah. And uh, I, I think when you focus on those, the naysayers are just, you know, in the background. They don't you don't focus on that. You focus on those that are there to support you. And I, I've been very fortunate, blessed to have really good mentors throughout my career. And and then I also look at it like uh, oftentimes I heard comments and we're taking promotional exams. I'll never forget one time I heard a, someone tell somebody else, one of the guys saying, no woman's going to beat me on this test. And I'm like, hey, whatever I could do to help motivate, I think that's a good thing, too. Right? <laughs> whatever motivating factors are out there, let's use them. <laughs> so I just kind of laughed at that and thought, this is great. It's, they're moti- it's motivating folks to do things, you know, to yeah. be better. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, what, whatever it takes. Right. <laughs> right. Right. Exactly. For sure. Yeah. So, you know, the, the department changed its name uh, several years ago. And. Yes kind of want to explore that a little bit because that kind of falls into the whole 21st century discussion, which we'll get into in a minute. But okay. why, why, why did you do that? So let me, uh, the credit completely goes to Fire Chief Harry Beck. He was our chief at the time. And uh, the ironic thing was we had committees together and the chief told all of us, he formed a committee, labor management committee and said, we need to include medical in our name because that's 80, 75 to 80% of our business. Because yeah. You know, we show up and what is the fire? You know, they call 911 and for a heart attack and we show up and they're like, what's the fire department doing here? I think that still happens today. So uh, chief says we need to um, change our name. We need to add medical to it. Put a committee together after like four or five months, the committee comes back and tells the chief at the time, Chief Beck, you know what? We decided we should probably just educate more on the Mesa Fire Department, do more education (laughs) instead of adding medical to the name. He said, "Okay, well, thank you for that. Four months later, he said, our new name is Mesa Fire and Medical <laughs> Department. And we have one year to transition. <laughs> so when the committee came back with a suggestion that didn't have the name in it, the chief said, well, well, we're just going to have to do that. He let us decide whether we wanted an amper stamp behind it or a dash or whatever. It's like. But um, so he it was really about educating the public on what we do. That's 80 percent of our business. And there was never, ever a question asked. Uh, when you see Mesa Fire and Medical, they now people start understanding we are the medical providers. In the valley here, the entire valley, the, the engines and ladders have two medics and two EMTs on them. Wow. And so, yeah, so all, every unit is an all-hazard unit with ALS capabilities. So he said we need to let the public know that we are the medical providers in our community. And so he did it. He We transitioned so it wouldn't cost a lot of money. We waited as the next uniform order that came in had our new name. Uh, as trucks transitioned out, they put, you know, they repainted them with the Mesa Fire Medical name on it too. So stationary, we used up the old and ordered new. We didn't just throw things out. So it was mm-hmm. about a year to 18 month transition on all of that. And mm-hmm. it was very, very smooth, very clean. And then people just got used to it as for a while they're half were wearing the old uniform and half were wearing the new as we were transitioning. So people kind of got to watch it phase out. You know, so and now it's just now anybody getting hired. We've heard so many people probably in the last three, four years that that's all they know. Now that's all they know is Mesa Fire Medical Department. Well, and so does the community. I right. Mean, 
I mean, exactly. it really creates that alignment from the community to the to the department about what what you do. Right, right. That's and because for so long we all know what we did, but when they all said, "What is what is a fire truck coming for?" when I called, and now they see that they see medical on everything we do, and you know we're all giving vaccine. They now we're out in the public, just really yeah. um, letting them know that we are we're here for medical too. <laughs> Well, you know, Mace has been long known for being a very innovative department, and you know, we stole a really cool idea from you. <laughs> Good. <laughs> uh, the Advanced Provider Nurse Practitioner Program. Yeah. And I, I don't know if you're still doing that. You, you did it for I think four or five years uh, with Dr. Smith as the the lead, and we actually brought him in to Anaheim to help us uh, formulate. And he was our physician yep. supervisor uh, for I think three, two, three years, but. Uh, that's just an example of one program. I know there are many, but you might want to talk a little bit about that because that, I think that has uh, still some long-term uh, potential uh, in the fire and emergency services. Absolutely. I'm glad you're doing it and hopefully you're enjoying. I loved when we had our nurse practitioners on hand like that. So right now we had a pause it. Uh, when the grant ended, we were on a $12 million grant. It was for three mm. years. We actually had the nurse practitioner before the grant, about a year. We had a partnership with one of the hospitals in our community. And um, it was so nice for those patients that didn't need to go to the ER, but had to go. I mean, they needed to go to the get attention, but it didn't need to be an ER. You know, you have an elderly person with a a sinus infection or you have a baby that just needs an antibiotic and the whole family had to take the baby to the <laughs> er all these yeah. kind of what you're experiencing today so we um at that time for the grant we had partnered a nurse practitioner with a paramedic and they went on any call that the crews went on that said you know what this person doesn't need to go to the air but needs to be taken care of they the nurse practitioner went and avoided an er visit and the patient could stay home especially for the elderly when they don't need to be exposed to all those additional germs or like i said these these kids that just needed stitches or needed something mm -hmm. that didn't need to have the whole family go sit in the air because a single mother with three kids would you have to go sit in the ear um, an, another uh thing a benefit we had to the program which we learned about as we were doing it was pd would call us they have to medically clear patients Normally, PD would call us, and we, as medics, we don't medically care, clear chest pain or anything like that. They'd take these people before they brought them to jail. These people would suddenly have difficulty breathing or chest pain. Ironically, that happens right after they get arrested. So, <laughs> PD, so, so PD would call us, and yeah. then we'd have to take them to the ER. Then PD would have to follow in the other police department would have to follow in the ER. Well, now the nurse practitioners could medically clear. They get on the scene. They look. They check their O2 sat. They check everything. They go, yep. They're cleared. They don't have to go to the hospital and you can take them to jail. It was a win-win. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it just saved time, money, and the pay, and they were not, you know, taking up a bed in the ER unnecessarily. Yeah, we, we actually did the same thing. And, they, and, and PD approached us and said, because they had a small jail in Anaheim, uh -huh. they have a, a holding cell before they transferred them uh, over to county. And so they asked us if we could, you know, come over and do that evaluation. And that took some... It took about an eight to 10 month process to get through the system, not theirs, but the county system and the jail system, which right. is a totally different animal. I hear. But did. And, um, you know, it was uh, it was a godsend for them because, I mean, they, they lose an officer for three, four hours when they go to the emergency room. They pull them off the street. Yep. Yes. Yep. And, 
you're right. And the funny thing was, it wasn't until PD said that to me one day, they said, oh, my God, we love your nurse practitioner unit. And I went, what do you mean? Because I'm like, how are they? And he they explained what they're using. I went, oh, my gosh. And I remember going back and telling Chief Beck at the time, that was not even something we even thought would be no. beneficial when we started. Yeah. No. So, so, yeah. They ended up paying us a, a per call, a per diem call, uh, right. which helped us to offset our expenses. But, you know, it's it's uh, it was it was a win win for 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 both agencies, but it was a really win win for the city because it saved yeah. money and it kept officers on the street. Exactly, for sure. And it keeps people out of the ER so you don't get the, <clears throat> there's always beds for the people that need them, you know, if they don't need to go to the ER. So we, we took a pause in the program after the grant, but we applied for ET3 and we were accepted. Uh, that's the emergency triage treatment and transportation mm -hmm. program from um, NHSS. And um, we, uh, I'm sorry, not, not NHSS, it's from the, you know, the one from the national, on the national end. Yes. Yeah, so we applied for um, that. And so our program is slated to start. We have our behavioral unit in service, which we'll talk about later. That's part of ET3 that you can get reimbursed for taking them to alternate destination. And then we also wrote in there that a year from now, we would have a nurse practitioner in the system for the same kind of thing. So I'm yeah. I'm really anxious to get that back up and running. Yeah, I know in Anaheim, they had to, uh, after I left, they had to shelve it when they went into COVID. Yes. And, uh, and uh, they also lost their nurse practitioner. So I think the, the plan is they're going to bring that back hopefully next year. But we found there that we were diverting 50 percent of the transports. We were able to to either go BLS or keep them at home. And we were able to release the uh, ALS units about 82, 83 percent of the time. Yes. Yeah. Because uh, the nurse practitioner can treat and release uh, in the field. And, you know, a lot of these folks like, you know, if you're going on you know, 90 year old person at 10 o'clock at night, the last thing they want to do is go to the ER. <laughs> right, you're right. You're absolutely right. Yeah. And it does divert a lot of them from having to do that and expose them to more germs. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. And then if, if one of your own gets hurt, you have a nurse practitioner right here to assess them, you know, <laughs> you know, like someone gets hurt right here on the job. We had someone, one of the yeah. summer city fell and cut themselves. And so the nurse practitioner were right there and helped them out. And yeah. Just, just stitched them up and said you can stay you can stay on the job yeah yes uh, so, yeah i mean and you know uh, flu shots and all of that which we couldn't give at the time at least in california i mean she would go through and do the whole department and then you know the city would come knocking on the door so she was doing all the elected officials which was a really great oh yeah it's a win-win-win so well, let's just jump into the whole social service behavioral health program. Yeah. Because I would really like to hear about that. You bet. So the, the first one we've been doing the longest is we have um, two crisis counselors, a, like a tech and an actual crisis counselor that respond together. So they're in a city vehicle here uh, when the crews or they listen to the radio and they hear a call, they get on scene. <clears throat> this is for behavioral health. And um, I'll tell you what, to have them there, the crews absolutely love it because that's the kind of a area we're not very comfortable with you know you can take care of the emergency but the long-term piece of it and normally what we've always done is a suicide threat or a suicide attempt that doesn't have anything that's seriously um a serious injury we take them to the er even a phone call suicide threat well that takes up a bed sometimes in their er for three days two yeah. days until they can find them a place and kids are even longer some kids have been in the er for a week at a time till they can place them somewhere 
the advantage that we have with crisis counselors in the field is when they call to place them because they are in the home, they need to, they, they have a better chance of getting a bed because they know they're not in a stable environment. When they're in the ER, they know they're safe. They know they're in a stable environment. And the ER also provides a sitter or someone to watch over any behavioral patient too. So they have a, like a twofold event when they have a behavioral patient in there, they also have to have not only someone to treat them medically, but someone to stand by and watch them that they don't do anything to harm themselves or, or harm others. So our uh, behavioral group, they get called to the scene, they assess the patient, they can either do a safety you know, evaluation assessment and leave them home with another family member if they feel comfortable with that. If this was like, I'm just gonna use a suicide threat as an example. And if not, they take them directly to a behavioral facility. Uh, once July 1st comes around with ET3 that we applied for, we will be able to get reimbursed to take them to a behavioral facility, just as if we were going to take them to uh, an ER. Mm -hmm. It's better for the patient. They get the care that they need right there on the scene. And I, and I have to say that, especially now with COVID, it seems like these numbers are rising. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a lot more kids that are dealing with depression and all of this because of kind of what they've lived this last year. Uh, when the school system, the school system has called them out a few times to help with um, certain kids in the schools. Yeah. So it is really, uh, it impacts the entire city and makes a big difference on the patient getting the right care in the very beginning. Because when they go to the ER and they're in the ER for two or three days, that is not helping their situation at all. No. And the same group that we have on our team, that's the same group that goes to look at them in the ER and evaluate them. So they're getting the exact same care that they would get if they were in the ER for two or three days for, for uh, emotional assessments. Mm -hmm. so. Yeah, you know, it's it's such a great program, but I think it's also uh, an indicator of, I think, how we need to kind of change our viewpoint on how we're addressing our responses, because so many of them are driven by socioeconomic issues, whether it's behavioral health, uh, not having access to medical care, uh, not having medical care at all. Uh, so we become the conduit uh, to primary care for them. Um, you know, the economics, all, all of these things wrapped up. And we have, you know, for, for I think for our history, we've always looked at, well, we'll just respond and we'll, we'll do what we do. And we go through that one, two, three, we take them to the hospital and we leave. And then we'll go back and do it another time and we go back and do it another time. And, and I think we have to be part of the solution. Uh, yes. we, we see it every day. So we know how to intervene in, in specific and direct ways that we can change the course of what that person is going through. And I think we need to take ownership of that. And I agree 100 percent because we are we're first responders, but we're primary care because so many people call us as primary care. Mm -hmm. And you are exactly right. And that's why we instituted the other piece of our social services program that you're alluding to, like the high utilizers. Mm -hmm. um, so we have a program in place now. If we go on someone more than once for the same thing, we have a electronic reporting, EPCR, and they will tag, you know, check a box and it goes right to our social services. So they get these lists of individuals and they go to the house and they visit them. You know, they'll, and our team will tell them, We're, you're going to have someone from Mesa Fire Department call you so they know it's coming because they check the box on the electronic reporting. Our team goes out there and so many times on these high utilizer calls, I mean, like literally we might go on a patient 10 times in a three month period yeah. for maybe falls or for 
maybe they need to be in assisted living and no one's ever, you know, they just can't live by themselves anymore. So our social service team goes out there and they assess the situation. They talk to the patient and they evaluate what the needs are. And then they connect them with the right social services. If they need home health, if they need to go to assisted living, they'll work with the family. They'll say, hey, we've been going on your mom or dad this, you know, a lot. So they really connect them with the right resources. And also what, what our team does is if it's for fall calls, we will install pull bars. We will install things to help them, you know, that do a home safety inspection. A rug that wasn't a hazard in your 60s was a it is a hazard in your 90s, right? Yes. <laughs> so then they, you know, they they look at these kind of things that are causing these tripping hazards and really have reduced uh, the number of times we respond on these patients. And the most beneficial thing is that they don't get hurt. So, like, I have some data from 2020. We, um, for some calls we had, we had, for 2020, we went, uh, we had 578 referrals. And 2020 was kind of a slow year because of COVID. Our call Mm -hmm. volume during that year dropped. We had 578 referrals. And um, with three, we had three full-time employees that were dedicated to this program during COVID. Because some jobs had to re, some jobs we couldn't do. So we kind of (laughs) made phone calls and all that. They reduced the number. So we, what we do is we see how many times do we go on 911 calls with these patients before and after. So three months before and three months after. We had over 1,099 calls. It's about 1,100 calls the first three months with, with um, these patients. It was about 100 and, let's see, 20, about 120 patients. We had over 1,100 calls. And in the next three months, less than 500 calls. So we cut the calls in half in terms of 911 calls. So some people uh, would call eight times, they end up calling only three times, you know? So some, if it's diabetes and things like that, you're gonna get repetition, uh, repetitive calls, but we have reduced the number of calls. And that's kind of like what you said, we're trying to be proactive because we know people are gonna call 911 when we have high utilizers, you know, these these calls that uh, are repetitive for them. If we can reduce them on that end, it'll prevent them from having to call 911. In the month of December, we had um, 94 patients that called 911 more than once. And we had, um, they generated 192 calls. We reduced the number of times they called 911. So we did six months before and six months after. We reduced the number of times these folks called 911 by 61% the next six months. Wow. And then it stays that way. So we're cutting these these calls in half, if not more. Yeah. Well, and sometimes it's a, ma- a matter of getting to the root cause, uh, why they call yes. in the first place, and then connecting them with who they really need to be connected with. And I think there's a, a, another leg to that stool, and that is creating the relationship. Yeah. Because sometimes these people are by themselves, they don't have a lot of family support. So if, if we can create the relationship to get them to go to assisted living yes. and at least look at it or to get other services, I think that's, you know, that's part of what we should be doing anyway. It's called community risk reduction. <laughs> right, exactly, right? CRR. <laughs> and I think when, when our crews are on the scene and they, and they let you know, hey, we're gonna have somebody from our department call you, they kind of already feel a little bit comfortable knowing that they're getting some someone else coming to see what else they need. But you're absolutely right. The relationship with the patient and these folks are so good at it. They're so good at the social services side. And, and you're right. We're not taking over for any other. We don't want to take over from home for home health or anything like that. But we're the conduit 
that brings yeah. them all together. And that's what's key because there's so many resources that are available that people aren't aware of. And just getting them connected with, with what they need is is what's important. Yeah. And, and that's what they're really good at. Yeah, that's what we that's what we found too. And that's I totally agree. And I think I wish more departments and hopefully they will will embrace that philosophy and, and begin to utilize it because I think that's where we can really significantly reduce our call volumes. Right. But but more importantly, help help the people that we're supposed to be helping in the first place. So exactly. exactly. <laughs> and you're exactly right. And I have to tell you another program that we I was really proud of our team. They started a program this past year just before COVID hit. And it's so we've looked at our data to see how many like cardiac type calls have we had. Like if we have an elderly population, we see a lot of cardiac calls in one area, like in one a senior living facility. We started to go there and do education on it in terms of if you have chest pain, if you have these things, this is what you should do. Or, you know, if you're starting to feel these signs and symptoms, you know, make sure you see your doctor. Just education, because so many times people are in denial, right? That's the number one thing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you're in denial that you're not having a heart. So we're going out into these senior living areas where we see high, a, 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 a very typical type of call that we have high volume in that certain areas. We're doing like more concentrated education on those areas like senior living or like we have senior communities. We have a lot of senior communities in Mesa. And we look at the data there and say a lot of fall calls in this one section of Mesa. They go out into these senior living areas and do education on fall hazards and things like they'll they will continue to do that in in groups, large groups. So they're not going into individual houses, but they're reaching masses at the same time. Tonight, there's an event. I'm going to one tonight. I'm, I'm anxious to go see it. I think they're having it at 530. So I'm I'm anxious to see that. But yeah, so they've uh, they just have gone out and started education in large groups like that to prevent injuries to prevent falls to give people awareness of what to expect if they're having chest pain and things like that so they can get help from their doctor ahead of time before having to call 911 yeah and yeah i think that's that's excellent and that's what we should be doing mm -hmm. and uh, hopefully more agencies will take or follow your lead uh and, and and gravitate and do that i think it's just essential yeah and and i'm, I'm anxious to see the before and after with this because it's a program we just started in covid we kind of didn't want to go into the communities as much yeah. so i'm anxious to see some of the results here now that we're getting back in there we're going back in now so yeah yeah, yeah. well we're bumping up on time but i wanted to ask you uh, just kind of a final uh, question you, sure. you sit on the board with so the center for public safety excellence yes yes, yes. And, and you guys re released a report uh, last year called the 21st century uh, fire and emergency services white paper Mm -hmm. uh, which identified some critical issues that uh, I think most uh, most fire chiefs and probably everyone uh, within the fire and emergency services should be at least talking about. But you know, what do you see the future? Uh, I mean, I'd like to I'd like to get your perspective on you know where 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 are we going to be in twenty or thirty years? Yeah, you know, to be honest, I think that we're heading in the right direction in terms of I think the social services piece is going to really expand. I think the education, everything with the proactive things we do are going to have a great impact on the fire service. I I, I know that um, we're getting safer and safer on the fire ground, although we still lose firefighters every year. Um, I think the training that we're doing is phenomenal. The, the training capabilities these days with the virtual training and the type of, yeah. I mean, just the <laughs> tools and the equipment for training now are just amazing. I just went to our 
EMS training yesterday and we have video laryngoscopes for intubations. <laughs> <laughs> so I think, you know, we're probably gonna have doctors on the trucks doing stuff. <laughs> Not really, but I'm just saying yeah. having medics and everything. But I think that our skill set is unbelievable. I just I I do believe that the social services piece of what we do is gonna be more impactful. We can't just when I look at the farces, we just can't keep doing things the same way all the time without kind of to your point looking out at what the community needs. I think reaching out to what the community needs is going to make us a more of an Im impactful fire service that really has a positive impact on your communities based on what the community needs are. And if ours are social services today or mental health today, those are the areas we're going to expound on and those are the areas we're going to reach out and, and make a difference on because that's what our community needs. And I think uh, fire services we're going to have to be very adaptable to what's going on mm -hmm. in your community. What works today might not be needed in 10 years. You know, yeah. so I, I think it's our and I feel like you do. It's our responsibility. And I always try and pay attention to what's going on and what's happening in the community and the types of calls we're going on, because that's where we need to head. And, and those and I, I'm quite uh, as I see it progress today, the social service behavioral health arena is what we're going to see more and more. Uh, involvement in. Yeah, I totally agree. I think we I think we're going to move from a reactive force to a predictive force and and it will bring in a new uh, uh, new skill sets that we're going to need to incorporate uh, under our umbrella and uh, manage and lead in, in the future. And I think it's uh, but ultimately it's going to make for a safer uh, community and, uh, and improve the health and welfare of the people that work for us. And so, I mean, if we can do those two things, uh, you know, that'll be a great day. <laughs> Absolutely. And that's what it's all about. Our mission statement in the fire department is to serve with care, compassion, mm -hmm. accountability, respect, and excellence. And I say this, and every time I go speak, you ask anybody on the Mesa Fire Department what their mission statement is, and they will tell you. And why, why is that so important is because when your employees know what you expect of them, you hope they do it every time on every call. Yep. And if they follow the mission, they will be doing exactly what you expect of them. <laughs> and that's yes. what I just, yeah, and I just said, if you follow that mission, because you all know it, everyone knows the mission statement. They follow that mission statement on every call. They will be doing exactly what we expect of them. Yep. Very, very true. Well, Chief, thanks for being with me today. It's, oh, yeah. It's an absolute honor. And, and uh, we'll, we'll have you back and we'll explore some other things in the future. That sounds great. It's my honor. Thank you for the time, Randy. And you have a great day. Okay, thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.